Hi, I'm Jojakevich, and welcome to the Story Lanes Podcast, the podcast where every episode we do a deep dive into a movie or TV show. And to go along with this analysis, I publish a chart of the story we're covering on the Storylanes.com website, a chart I produced while preparing the episode. You don't need to look at that chart, the podcast is standalone. But if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at Storylanes.com. This week we're doing 2010's The Social Network, the story of the creation of Facebook. It got an Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay. It was written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by David Fincher, and starred Jesse Eisenberg, Andrew Garfield, and Justin Timberlake. Now, as usual, this podcast assumes you've seen the movie. There will be spoilers, and there won't be detailed explanations of plot points. So if you listen to this without knowing the movie, you're out of luck. The movie will be spoiled for you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about. It's basically the worst of all worlds. But this movie is well worth watching, if for no other reason than because we all need to better understand the social media companies that dominate our world and the people who created them. The Social Network is the story of Mark Zuckerberg, the real-life creator of Facebook. It gives a not-so-flattering portrayal of Zuckerberg and the rise of Facebook, how he created it, and the enemies he made along the way. And it structures this look through the lens of two lawsuits that Zuckerberg faced, by the Winklevoss twins, who claim that Zuckerberg stole their idea, and by Eduardo Saverin, who is Zuckerberg's partner in the creation of Facebook, but who Zuckerberg cut out fairly quickly once he got real venture capital backing. Now I'm going to start right out and say that I think this film has some significant problems. The characters all sound alike, well-educated, fast-talking, witty. There are some serious problems here with the representation of women, though to what extent that comes from the filmmakers versus the subject matter is worth exploring. And the script is built around a pair of central conflicts that, at the end, the movie says don't matter. Now I promise we'll get to all of those problems. But there is also the question of how accurately this film represents the facts of Facebook's finding. That's a question that can be asked about a lot of historical fiction, let alone fiction about such recent history. When this movie was made, the events it showed were less than 10 years old. And I'm going to start right out and lay down my marker on that question. I don't think it matters. I don't think one should look to historical fiction to be accurate. I don't care if a story like this takes major liberties with the truth. That's not what this kind of film is for. Now I should note, I am a huge fan of history and a huge fan of historical fiction in any medium, whether it be films, plays, books, musicals, even paintings. But I know the difference between history and historical fiction, and I think everyone should just accept it and move on. This issue was settled at least as long ago as Shakespeare. Just because they call some of his plays the history plays doesn't mean they are a good source of history. And that's my position on the accuracy of this film. I'm not even going to address how accurate the film is because I just don't care. And I'm standing by that position. Fight me if you want. But that still leaves a lot of problems that I find in this movie, problems that I will be addressing in this episode. So why look at this film? There's many reasons. First, I think that we learn by examining a flawed film, so doing that examination is never wasted time. But second, there's clearly something of value to this film. Note those Oscars that I mentioned. That itself makes it worth examining. Because if the film has big flaws, then it must have some pretty big strengths to overcome those flaws, right? Finally, one other thing I should note. 
When the events of this film took place, I was working at America Online. Not only that, I was working in the social networking group at AOL and working on another product in the same space as Facebook. In other words, I was competing with Facebook while this movie is taking place. And I was doing it as a software engineer, doing many of the kinds of things that Zuckerberg does in this film. I actually understand the technobabble in this film, and I understand what it is that was special about Facebook and what it brought that was new to social networking. This gives me a different perspective on this film, though one that, by and large, I'm not going to dwell on, because it's not applicable to the things that we're looking at here, how the movie is structured and what it is about this story that makes it effective. But I suppose that, for me at least, this is one more reason to analyze the film. It's interesting to view a film that's about a subject that I completely understand. It gives me a different perspective. And even though I don't care that much about historical accuracy in watching this film, there are some things the movie gets wrong that makes it harder for me to suspend my disbelief. Things that people not in the business might not notice. All that said, let's take a look at these characters. And one more caveat I should note. Most of the key characters in this film are based on real people. But when I speak of characters, I'm talking about the characters as they appear in the movie. I'm not talking about the real people. I don't know any of the real people, know very little about them. I don't really care about them, truth be told. So unless I specifically note it, when I speak of Mark Zuckerberg, I mean Mark Zuckerberg, the character in the social network, not Mark Zuckerberg, the real guy who founded Facebook. And similarly for the other characters in this movie that are based on real people. But let's start with Mark Zuckerberg. He's a wonderfully complex and flawed character, but one that this film ultimately sides with. When we meet him, he's a Harvard student being dumped by his girlfriend. He's arrogant, self-obsessed, obnoxious, with limited social skills, few friends, and a real bug up his butt about final clubs, a special kind of club that they apparently have at Harvard. Mark's the kind of guy who, if you bug him, he'll lash out and do something stupid on the internet. But he's also a creative genius. He's an incredibly skilled programmer. He comes up with some great ideas. He's definitely held up by this film as a model of genius. And if you listen to Aaron Sorkin talk about this film, it's clear that he's on Zuckerberg's side, even in the face of Zuckerberg's moral compromises. The second key character is Eduardo Saverin. He starts out as Mark's partner in founding Facebook, and he is sympathetic throughout. When Mark cuts him out of Facebook, it's his biggest betrayal. And Eduardo is always decent. He's presented as Mark's good shadow. But Eduardo is also shown as having too small a vision. He doesn't realize just what Facebook can be. And for a business major, he seems strangely unaware of how startups work and how they can explode with venture capital. Now this is one of those times when I view this movie through the lens of my own experience, both at AOL and at a series of early stage startups that I worked at. Eduardo seems remarkably ignorant of just how internet startups work. How the venture capitalists come in and provide the big money to get the company off the ground if you've got a big enough thing going. And how the thing that really gets a company going at this early stage is not ad sales. It's venture capital investments. From my perspective, this might be the most unbelievable thing about this movie, especially given that it takes place after the dot-com boom, when a budding entrepreneur could be expected to know this stuff. Now, of course, this might be a totally true part of the story. 
That doesn't matter. I'm still not convinced. And Eduardo's general ignorance of these things makes him far less sympathetic. The fact is, Mark and Sean are right and Eduardo is wrong. The company is better off without Eduardo, even if the way that Mark disposes of him is way too heavy-handed. The next major character is Sean Parker, the founder of Napster, a revolutionary music-sharing platform that led to lots of lawsuits and a bankruptcy. Sean is presented here as a complete jerk who nevertheless possesses the connections and savvy that Facebook needs to take off. He sleeps with lots of pretty young girls, does a lot of drugs, holds grudges, is needlessly cruel, and is Mark's mentor in the world of starting a business. He's the one who gets Mark to move Facebook to Silicon Valley. He's the one who introduces Mark to venture capitalists. He's the one who ushers Facebook from being a niche social networking product catering to college students to the monolith that it is today. And you may notice a trend here. There are a lot of jerks in this film, but they are generally right about the course of Facebook. It's not clear what the movie is saying about this. I find that a problem with this movie. The movie seems to say that it doesn't matter if you're a jerk as long as you're a smart jerk. The next key characters are the Winklevoss twins. Cameron and Tyler Winklevoss, scions of a wealthy family, Olympic-level rowers and crew, members of the Porcellian Club, the most prestigious of Harvard's final clubs. And, of course, we also meet their friend and business partner, Divya Narendra. Now together, these three have an idea for a social network for Harvard students, with the key discriminator is that it is only open to people with harvard.edu email addresses. The Winklevosses are established, good-looking, athletic, and rich. We're definitely in Silver Spoon territory here. They are also an impressive pair. As one says when considering the possibilities if dealing with Mark will require violence, I want to hire the Sopranos to beat the shit out of him with a hammer. We don't even have to do that. That's right. We can do that ourselves. I'm 6'5", 220, and there's two of me. The Winklevosses will spend much of the movie chasing after Mark, trying to stop him from what they think of as stealing their idea. And ultimately, they are not presented sympathetically. Again, it's clear that Sorkin is on Mark's side in this conflict. Now, there is one thing I want to note about these two. It's almost impossible to distinguish the Winklevosses from each other. They are played by the same actor, and while the script makes some effort to distinguish between them, with Tyler being the more aggressive and Cameron more restrained and determined to play by all the old rules, in this movie the difference between them doesn't come over at all. I find this a problem with the film, though admittedly a minor one. And, I should note, I say this as a man who is married to an identical twin, one who I would never mistake for her sister. And those are the major characters of this film. Notice something interesting about them? They are all men. Now, there are some female characters in this film. There's Mark's girlfriend, Erica, who, when she dumps him in the opening scene, provides the film's inciting incident. There's Marilyn, one of Mark's lawyers, who manages to form a real connection with Mark at the depositions. There's Christy, Eduardo's crazy girlfriend. And that's really about it. No other female character stands out at all. Which raises the question, is this film misogynist? Or is it just an accurate depiction of a misogynist culture? Because I am sorry to have to say this, but the world of high-end software development is a misogynist culture. Now, I don't have a good answer to whether this movie itself is misogynist. 
I'm fairly certain that the film doesn't pass the Bechtel test, though I haven't specifically examined it for that. And there are some good strong female characters here, though they are minor. Erica is self-possessed and strong. Marilyn tells Mark how things are and delivers the last and critical line of the movie, the one that sums up Mark and answers the film's central question. You're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. But it's kind of hard to avoid the fact that this movie's significant female characters are greatly outnumbered by the number of hot women wearing only underwear. As such, I've added Elaine to the story lane's analysis, pointing out all the times when this movie seems sexist. So, like I said, the movie is clearly portraying a sexist culture. Is the movie itself sexist? I don't know, but I suspect it might be. And it is clear that it does not hold Mark responsible for his misogyny. And make no mistake, FaceMash, the program he makes before he makes Facebook, is misogynist. But it's treated as just a little minor drunken mistake that he made once upon a time, something that he just sort of tosses off. Even his talk about comparing women to farm animals is thrown off at the end where he just says, Farm animals. Yeah. I was drunk and angry and stupid. And blogging. And blogging. So this is a problem, I think. And I think there is another problem with these characters. They all sound pretty much the same. There's a rule of thumb that is often given to screenwriters to test the quality of their character voices. Pick a line randomly from the script. If you can't tell who is speaking that line, you've got a problem. Well, following that rule of thumb, the social network has a problem. Pretty much everyone in this film speaks the same. All the dialogue is incredibly witty, fast-paced, intelligent, with an educated vocabulary. These characters don't have distinct voices. Now, of course, they all speak incredibly well-structured, entertaining lines, good enough that I chose to analyze this film entirely for the quality of the dialogue. But still, do note that these character voices are not distinct. They are entertaining voices, but they don't stand out. Okay, enough complaints. Let's look at the structure of this film. Now, the first thing we should note about this script is just how long it is. The script goes on for 163 pages. That's immense for a movie script. 120 pages is usually the outer limit. But this one runs 163, and nevertheless the movie only runs for two hours. Welcome to Sorkinland. The reason that the script is so long is that Aaron Sorkin writes many dialogue-rich scenes in which actors speak very fast. The one-minute-per-page rule of thumb does not apply to an Aaron Sorkin script. Look, for example, at the opening scene, the long conversation between Mark and Erica. That scene takes up eight full pages in the script, but it only runs five minutes in the movie. Now that's still an incredibly long scene to start a movie, especially given that it's just two people sitting at a table talking. But with eight pages for a five-minute scene, it blows right past the page-per-minute rule. And there are some interesting structural things going on in all those pages. Take, for example, that opening scene. It accomplishes a lot. Now, one thing I've noticed in several of the movies that we've seen is that they often start with some big event. If it's a horror film, we get a taste of the horror. If it's an action movie, there's an action set piece. If a comedy, it starts with something big and funny. Now, this is an Aaron Sorkin film, so it starts with a tour de force of conversation. 
a five-minute scene of two people talking where the dialogue is rich and fast and entertaining. Now this scene does several things. It gives us a thorough introduction to Mark Zuckerberg, our protagonist. It contains the inciting incident when Erica dumps Mark. This inspires Mark to spend a drunken night programming to create FaceMash, which in turn leads to him building Facebook. And Erica dumping Mark provides a lasting motivation for Mark, because for the rest of the film he will pursue a hopeless quest to win back Erica. And the scene also introduces the central question of this film. Is Mark Zuckerberg an asshole? Yeah, I know that sounds kind of silly, but it really is the central question of this film. But I'll address that later. So after this tour de force of an opening, complete with a spellbinding conversation, we are into Act 1. Now this is yet another of those films that fit nicely into three-act structure with a midpoint. Which, of course, means that I think of it in terms of four acts, with that midpoint making the shift from Act 2 to Act 3. I shan't belabor that point, though. Let's just take a look at the acts. Curiously, there's two things that distinguish the acts in this film. First, in each act, Mark builds something new, though in some cases that something new is a new generation of Facebook. And second, each act introduces a new significant player into the life of Mark and Facebook. Let's dive a little deeper and I'll show you what I mean. Now obviously, in Act 1, the key character that we meet is Mark himself. Though we also meet Eduardo, his best friend and collaborator. And Eduardo is a character who occasionally challenges Mark's position as protagonist of this film. For a while later on, Eduardo becomes our point-of-view character before he retires to the sideline. But also in Act 1, Mark builds FaceMash, the webpage that allows Harvard students to rate Harvard girls based on their appearance. Mark does this in drunken anger at being dumped by Erica. And FaceMash is hugely popular. It gets Mark in trouble, but it wins him notoriety, too. So, Act 1, meet Mark. Act 1, build face mash. Act 2 opens when we meet the Winklevosses rowing on the river. They are the next key characters to appear in this history of Facebook, the ones who had the idea of building a social network keyed to the Harvard email accounts. Now here is a moment when I have to step in and note something based on my experience building social networking sites. Before Facebook, there were many social networking sites, and the basic structure of Facebook is not that different from its predecessors, sites like MySpace, Friendster, and some of the AOL products that I worked on. But Facebook had two key innovations that made its take off in its early days. First, there's the fact that on Facebook you use your real name. Other sites allowed you to set up profiles for false IDs, and you'd interact primarily with people you met online. On Facebook, by contrast, the expectation is that you are dealing with the real identities of real people, and generally ones that you have a real-world connection to. That makes it stand out. And second, there's the fact that you have a strong control on Facebook over who you are interacting with. And in the early days of Facebook, a key part of that was that Facebook only allowed on people with college email addresses. So basically, it was a social network site for college students, people who were still in college. In other words, Facebook was that social network for Harvard students thing that the Winklevosses introduced. Now the film takes the position that this was only a minor thing, that the Winklevosses are largely a joke, nothing compared to the brilliance that is Mark Zuckerberg. 
This is captured in the moment when Mark in the deposition says, If you guys were the inventors of Facebook, you'd have invented Facebook. But I clearly think that the Winklevosses came up with one of the key elements that led to Facebook's success. All of which is to say that I disagree with the social network on this point. But that's kind of beside the point. The key thing here is that Act 2 introduces the Winklevosses, and it takes Mark through the steps of building the Facebook. His initial version of Facebook, the version that would become popular at Harvard, and that, at the very end of the act, the team will launch to several other colleges. So again, an act is defined by the introduction of someone new and by the creation of something new. The Winklevosses and the Facebook, the social network for Harvard students. And now we enter Act 3, and Act 3 starts with the introduction of Sean Parker. Sean becomes Mark's mentor as he takes Facebook from something cool to something huge. He's the guy who gives one of the key lines of the movie. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? You? A billion dollars. More to the point, Sean inspires Mark to take the next key step in the evolution of Facebook. He talks Mark into moving to California to be at the center of the tech world. And that's the story of this act, how Mark moves to California and starts expanding Facebook ever further. He even drops the the in the name of the product. It's no longer the Facebook. Now it's just Facebook, a suggestion that comes directly from Sean. Drop the the, just Facebook. It's cleaner. So again, this Act 3 introduces a new character, Sean Parker, and it shows Mark creating something new, Facebook, the successor to the Facebook. We see the birth of this significant product and the moment it starts spreading beyond Harvard. And now we're into Act 4. Now, the character introduced in Act 4 isn't a major character in this film but he has a major impact on the direction of Facebook, and therefore on the direction of this film. This character is Peter Thiel, the venture capitalist who becomes Facebook's angel investor. Thiel only shows up in a scene or two, and not as a major presence in that scene. But his money is the catalyst that turns Facebook into a major company, that gets them out of a dorm and a rented house and into real offices. And Thiel's presence leads to Mark's betrayal of Eduardo, the betrayal that gives shape to this film's final act. So, four acts tied to the introduction of four key characters and to four major stages in the evolution of Facebook. First act, we meet Mark and he builds FaceMash. Second act, we meet the Winklevosses and they inspire Mark to build the Facebook. Third, we meet Sean and he is the catalyst for the creation of Facebook, the broader product, which is the next major evolution of the Facebook. And finally, we meet Peter Thiel, and with his money, Facebook goes big time. It's a pretty nice structure, actually. But let's take a moment to look at the midpoint of this film. The midpoint of this film is not a particular bit of action. It's the introduction of a new character. We meet Sean Parker almost exactly halfway through the movie. And when we do, it's in a scene utterly unlike anything we've yet seen in this film. Up until this point, the entire movie is set at Harvard and its environs. Things are dark, people wear sweaters, there's lots of deep wooden paneling. But Sean's introduction is very California. There's bright sunlight, people sit around not wearing much, there's big windows. It's a dramatic shift. 
There's an interesting lesson here for screenwriters. A midpoint can be anything that causes a dramatic change to the course of the narrative. That can mean a major action sequence, but it can also be the introduction of a new character in a new setting. So, looking at this structure, what is the central story of this film? It is ultimately about the creation of Facebook. Now, that's an interesting story, one that would make a fascinating business magazine article, maybe even a book. In fact, maybe the book that this movie was based on. But the creation of a company is a strange story for a major motion picture. Because really, do we as an audience care about the creation of such a big company? I suppose we might a little, especially if we are Facebook users, as most of us are. But there needs to be something more to this, some major personal conflict, some real drama, or else we just don't have a movie. And further, there aren't any significant twists and turns in the founding of Facebook. Mark gets the idea, it has initial success. He builds on the idea, he gets more success. He gets a big investment and he builds it even bigger. And now his success is gigantic. There's no twists and turns, no real challenges, so no real source of conflicts in the building of Facebook. And here is where things get interesting in the structure of this script, because the key conflict doesn't come from that central story, the rise of Facebook. The key conflict comes from the subplots. So let's take a look at them. But first, a quick note. I'm not going to dive into the other screenwriting models this episode. The social network doesn't do much to illuminate these models. The things we see here are things we've seen before. There's no debate or refusal of the call. Mark never really does have a dark night of the soul. Eduardo has some low points, but once things get rolling, Mark pretty much goes from success to success. He has a mentor in Sean Parker. The opening and closing images of the film are less significant than what is happening in those opening and closing scenes. Again, we've seen most of this before but I did put lanes in the story lanes analysis for the various models if you want to see more. I'm just not going to spend more time on them here in this podcast. Now to the subplots. First of all, I'd say there's a key subplot tied to each of the main supporting characters of this film. First, there's Eduardo. At the start of the film, he is Mark's best friend, his only friend, really. So when Mark gets the idea to build Facebook, he turns to Eduardo to be his partner and Eduardo is completely on board. He finances the initial development of Facebook, putting down a total of $18,000 to get servers, rent a house, and fund whatever else is needed. The high point of the relationship between Mark and Eduardo comes at page 67 of the script, when the Facebook starts getting enough success at Harvard that college girls approach them, which leads to this exchange. She said, Facebook me. We can all go for a drink later, which is stunningly great for two reasons. One, she said Facebook me, right? And then the other, I want to have drinks later. Yes, have you ever heard so many different good things back into one regular size sentence? And later, as Eduardo marvels that... Yeah, groupies. All is great in the world, and these two are its conquerors. But soon thereafter, friction starts growing between Mark and Eduardo. And it boils down to one thing. Eduardo's vision for Facebook is not Mark's vision. And Eduardo's vision is much smaller than Mark's vision. I said it's time to monetize the site. What does that mean? It means it's time for the website to start generating revenue. No, I know what the word means. I'm asking how do you want to do it? Advertising. No. Well, we 
got 4,000 members. Because the Facebook is cool, and if we start installing pop-ups for Mountain well, Dew, it's not going to be cool. I wasn't thinking Mountain Dew, but at some point, and I'm talking as the business end of the company. The we don't even know what it is yet. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it can be. We don't know what it will be. We know that it is cool. And that is a priceless asset. I'm not giving up. Now, of course, Mark is completely right in this argument, and that's a key factor in this subplot. Eduardo is not the right guy to turn Facebook into a giant success. Mark has the necessary technical chops to get it to where it needs to be, but Eduardo doesn't have the vision or depth of understanding of the business side to lead the company to super growth. And as Mark gets more business-savvy advisors, first Sean Parker and then Peter Thiel, they pressure him to get rid of Eduardo. And he does. Thus, Mark ends up betraying Eduardo, turning his back on their friendship and their agreement. And Eduardo sues him, ultimately winning an undisclosed but presumably large amount of money. Now really, when it comes down to it, this subplot is fairly simple. Mark and Eduardo are friends, though Mark can be a tough guy to be friends with. They go into business together. Together they get Facebook off the ground and relish its success. Then Mark wants to expand ever bigger while Eduardo wants to turn Facebook into a more traditional business. Their friendship declines as they are no longer physically together, which is entirely due to a choice that Eduardo makes. Then Mark, under the influence of Sean and Peter Thiel, tricks Eduardo out of his ownership stake, finally kicking him out of Facebook. And, of course, Eduardo sues Mark for tons of money. It's a fairly simple plot. Rise of their mutual fortunes, fall of their friendship. No real twists and turns, it's all fairly linear. And, of course, there's not a lot of surprises here. We know from early on that this friendship is not going to last, because we know from early on that Eduardo sues Mark. Now, this subplot does bring a lot of conflict. Early on, there's minor friction between Mark and Eduardo, but that friction grows into real conflict as they start to disagree over business direction, and as Mark comes more and more under the influence of Sean, who Eduardo hates. This disagreement grows until Mark ultimately cuts Eduardo out of the company, which leads to the dramatic climax of the film as Eduardo confronts Mark. So, our next subplot is our next major supporting characters, the Winklevosses. Again, this is a fairly simple plot. The Winklevosses bring Mark in to work on an idea they have. Mark instead takes elements of their idea and bases Facebook on it. The Winklevosses pursue various methods to get back at Mark, and their frustration grows as Facebook becomes more and more popular. They eventually decide to sue Mark, and they win $60 million in a settlement. So once again, a fairly simple plot that generates conflict. We see the struggle of the Winklevosses as they try to find ways to stop Facebook and Mark, or to figure out how to get back at him. We see their meeting with the president of Harvard, an entertaining scene full of Sorkin's manifest wit. We even see the Winklevosses closely lose a rowing race, one of the few actual action scenes in this film. And the Winklevoss lawsuit itself provides conflict in this film in the deposition scenes. And then there's those deposition scenes. They serve as a separate subplot, the two sets of depositions, the ones for Eduardo's suit and the ones for the Winklevoss suit. And in them, Mark is a complete jerk. He shows disrespect to the other lawyers, to the various other people in the story, and to the entire process. Why didn't you raise any of these concerns before? It's raining. I'm sorry? It just started raining. Mr. Zuckerberg, do I have your full attention? 
No. Do you think I deserve it? What? Do you think I deserve your full attention? I had to swear an oath before we began this deposition, and I don't want to perjure myself, so I have a legal obligation to say no. Okay, no. You don't think I deserve your attention? I think if your clients want to sit on my shoulders and call themselves tall, they have a right to give it a try, but there's no requirement that I enjoy sitting here listening to people lie. You have part of my attention. You have the minimum amount. The rest of my attention is back at the offices of Facebook, where my colleagues and I are doing things that no one in this room, including and especially your clients, are intellectually or creatively capable of doing. His bad behavior adds an entertaining amount of conflict. But these scenes also do something that's kind of critical. This is a movie that largely consists of people talking to each other. There is almost no action in this film, and the only action is unnecessary. Things like that Winklevoss crew race, which is nice to look at but could be pulled out of this film without any loss at all. But if the film were just a whole bunch of long scenes of people talking to each other, it would get old quickly. We need a way to change things up. The deposition scenes serve that purpose. During several of the long conversations in the course of the plot, we cut between the conversation and one or both deposition scenes. The depositions allow us to get more information about what's going on, to see more perspectives. But they also shift the action around, keep the visuals from getting too stale. We cut between multiple conversations instead of being lost within one. So, the depositions add more verbal fireworks, give a sense of visual action, and give broader perspectives on the central action. All while adding tons of conflict as Mark argues with the lawyers, witnesses, and plaintiffs. Though I should note this, while these scenes are entertaining, I don't really believe them. Why is everyone in this room for a deposition? My understanding of how depositions work is that the deposition includes the lawyers, anyone needed to record the deposition, and the person being deposed. They don't include plaintiffs and defendants, this isn't a trial. Still, the scenes do make for good drama. Now note that the depositions themselves, except for the fun of seeing these characters go at each other with that patented Sorkin wit, are mostly in service of the existing subplots. One of the depositions is all about Eduardo's conflict with Mark. The other is about the Winklevoss conflict. Neither has a purpose unto itself. They both just allow for more explanation of and conflict about the existing subplots. So now let's look at the next major subplot brought by the presence of a next major supporting character, and that is Sean Parker. Sean doesn't appear until halfway through this film, and then he is pretty much Mark's model for what he wants to be. Sean is cool, has sex with lots of beautiful women, holds petty grudges against people who he feel wronged him, and is everyone's attention and admiration. Of course, he's also petty, has a problem with drugs and underage girls, and is constantly being kicked out of companies because of his poor behavior. And he shows himself completely lacking in physical courage, when Eduardo makes to take a swing at him in the final confrontation and Sean flinches, leading Eduardo to say, I like sitting next to you, Sean. It makes me look so tough. Now at the end, Mark does see Sean's limitations and seems to be getting out from under his spell. But before that happens, Sean helped Facebook rise to another level. Another subplot, Mark's feelings for Erica. Throughout the film, Mark is obsessed with Erica, the girl who dumps him in the opening scene. In fact, her dumping him is the inciting incident of this entire film. And even once Facebook is a success at Harvard, 
Mark runs into Erica and finds out that she still thinks he's the scum of the earth, saying, the Facebook. You called me a bitch on the internet, Mark. That's why I wanted to talk to you. If we on could the just... internet. That's why I came over. Comparing women to farm animals. I didn't end up doing that. It didn't stop you from writing it. As if every thought that tumbles through your head was so clever it would be a crime for it not to be shared. The internet's not written in pencil, Mark. It's written in ink. And you published that Erica Albright was a bitch right before you made some ignorant crack about my family's name, my bra size, and then rated women based on their hotness. Erica, is there a problem? No, there's no problem. You write your snide bullshit from a dark room because that's what the angry do nowadays. I was nice to you. Don't torture me for it. What's worse, Erica hasn't even heard of the Facebook demeans it when she says, Good luck with your video game. And all of this inspires Mark to take Facebook past Harvard to other colleges, just so Erica will see it. Now, even after Facebook grows big, Mark is still obsessing about Erica, which leads to this revealing dialogue with Sean, when Sean first says, You know why I started Napster? The girl I loved in high school was with the co-captain of the varsity lacrosse team, and I wanted to take her from him. So I decided to come up with the next big thing. And then later, Sean and Mark have this exchange. Do you ever think about that girl? What girl? The, the girl from high school who was with the lacrosse thing. No. So Sean's clearly gotten over with his obsession, but Mark is still obsessed with the girl that got him to start Facebook. And he's still obsessed with her at the end of the movie, which takes place several years later when he's doing depositions. And in fact, the very end of this movie is Mark trying to friend Erica on Facebook, and the film ends while he waits to see if she responds. And finally, there's Mark's other obsession, final clubs, which are apparently a big deal at Harvard. In the opening conversation with Erica, Mark obsesses over final clubs. Later, when the Winklevoss is asked to talk to him, Mark seems more interested that the meeting is taking place inside a final club than he does in what the Winklevosses actually have to say. And when he describes the idea of Facebook to Eduardo, he, he says, well, That's good. Eduardo, it's like a final club except we're the president. Later still, when Eduardo gets in a final club, it becomes a source of contention between him and Mark, with Mark giving little snide put-downs like, Hey, guess what? I made the second cut. That's good. You should be proud of that right there. Don't worry if you don't make it any further. And in the deposition, Mark denies his obsession a little too strongly when he says, They're suggesting I was jealous of Eduardo for getting punched by the Phoenix and began a plan to screw him out of a company I hadn't even invented yet. Were you? Gretchen. Jealous of Eduardo. Oh, stop typing. We're off the record. I know you've done your homework, and so you know that money isn't a big part of my life, but at the moment I could buy Mount Auburn Street, take the Phoenix Club, and turn it into my ping-pong room. And finally, in the big confrontation when Eduardo was kicked out of Facebook, Eduardo brings it all back, saying... Tell me this isn't about me getting into the Phoenix. So final clubs play a big part in this film. Now, we've done structure and we've done subplots. Let's take a step back and look at the overall story of this film. What exactly is the central conflict of this movie? Well, the movie shows the rise of Facebook, but there's not much conflict in that. Mark builds the site and it's a huge success. We don't see any real struggle there. So that's not a central conflict. There are major conflicts between Mark and Eduardo and between Mark and the Winklevosses. 
but the shape of the film turns these conflicts into battles about money and the lawsuits that Eduardo and the Winklevosses bring against Mark. And ultimately, the movie dismisses the importance of these struggles by having one of Mark's lawyers say, In the scheme of things, it's a speeding ticket. In other words, the movie is telling us that there are no stakes to this particular conflict, a conflict we've just spent two hours watching. And then there is the central question of this movie, the thing that comes closest to being a theme of this movie. And that is the question of whether Mark Zuckerberg is an asshole. It's introduced right at the end of that opening conversation with Erica when she says, okay, You are probably going to be a very successful computer person. But you're going to go through life thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. Because you're an asshole. And it's resolved in the very last line of dialogue in this film when Mark's lawyer Marilyn says, You're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be. And that's kind of the major theme of this film that Mark isn't an asshole, as argued over by two of the film's three significant female characters. And I'll note, while the movie seems to conclude that Mark is not an asshole, Based on everything we've seen of him in the film, I beg to differ. He starts as an asshole, and he really doesn't do anything to convince us otherwise. In fact, I don't know why Marilyn tells him he's not an asshole. We've certainly seen no cause for her to show him that kind of support. Now, Mark isn't completely lacking in decency. He does have this one moment with Sean after security has escorted Eduardo off the Facebook premises. You all right? You're kind of rough on him. It's life in the NFL. You know you didn't have to be that rough on him. Listen, I'm putting Sean. another... Sean! He didn't have to be that rough on him. He almost killed it. I'll send flowers. But that's the only moment in this entire film when Mark shows any decency. Otherwise, he's a complete asshole to just about everyone. He's an asshole to Erica. An asshole to Eduardo, an asshole to the Winklevosses, and an asshole to all the lawyers in the deposition. And note that this moment of decency only happens after Eduardo has left, and after Mark justified betraying Eduardo by saying to his face, You signed the papers. You set me up. You're going to blame me because you were the business head of the company and you made a bad business deal with your own company. Which, let us note, is something Mark says to his only real friend. Given that, I'm not convinced that Marilyn is right. The Mark Zuckerberg in this film seems like a pretty complete asshole to me. Okay, I've said some pretty harsh things about this film. I've said that in the last scene, the movie tells us that the central conflicts of the film have no stakes. I've said that the entire film is about the question of whether one character is an asshole, and I disagree with the conclusion that the film reaches. And at other times, I've noted that the character voices blend together and a good case could be made that the film is misogynist. So do I actually like this movie? Well, yeah, I kind of do. But I will say this. My experience in doing this podcast is that almost always doing a deep dive analysis of a film makes me appreciate and like that film even more. Seeing the details that makes these films work gives me a great appreciation for the craft that goes into the stories the depth of the screenplays in films, and I love finding deeper nuances, all the cool ways that these scripts tell their terrific stories. 
The Social Network is the first film I've analyzed where I came away from a deep dive analysis thinking less of the film than I previously did. Now don't get me wrong, the film has its charms. Sorkin keeps the plate spinning and never drops a ball. And obviously a big part of that is the dialogue. The dialogue in this film is amazing. There's non-stop quotable moments, and I wish I could converse with half the wit of a Sorkin character. It's worth watching the film just to hear all the terrific Sorkin dialogue. But when you strip this story down to the essentials, I don't think there's much here. The central conflicts have no stakes. The main character doesn't learn anything from what he goes through. While some characters are sympathetic, none are really likable. And after my analysis, I'm left with the conclusion that this movie is a cinematic circus. Plenty of big distracting acts, but no real nourishment beyond a little cotton candy. So what lessons can we take from this? First, if you can write dialogue like Aaron Sorkin, you can get away with murder. It doesn't matter if all the characters have basically the same voice, as long as that voice is as witty as Sorkin's voice. It doesn't matter if there's little substance to the story, as long as the story is told with this kind of dialogue. And you can have two characters sit and talk for minutes at a time, as long as the words they say were written by Sorkin. I'm not sure how applicable that lesson is to us mortal screenwriters, but it's certainly a lesson from this movie. Second, a movie has to mix things up, add different kinds of entertainment. And if your core story doesn't naturally include that mix, you had better find a way to add it. This film shows rowing races, it shows college hazing rituals, it shows hut girls in their underwear. None of that is really needed to tell the story of the rise of Facebook. But all of these things provide a distraction and break up the sameness, so they help the film. Third, note the use of the deposition scenes. They break up long conversations. They offer different perspectives on the action. They give frequent venues for Mark to be entertainingly dickish. They're a terrific structural addition to this film. You probably wouldn't want to use depositions per se in this manner because now it's been done. But consider some other similar structural element, a framework in which the story is being told. A framework that can have its own story and its own conflicts. This is a storytelling method that is as old as Scheherazade, and it really works well. So that's The Social Network. Next time we're going to look at Michael Clayton, the legal thriller from the mid-aughts, a script that is often held up by screenwriters as one of the masterpieces of the craft. So next time we'll get to find out why that's so. Until then, check us out at storylanes.com, where you'll find the script of this episode, a link to The Social Network screenplay, and the Story Lanes chart for this movie. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on whatever podcast service you heard it on. That will help others discover us. This is Joe Jakevich and the Story Lanes podcast. Talk at you later. Later.